0: Thank you for listening to the Resources for Integrated Care podcast series, Innovations in Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias, or ADRD, Caregiver Support Programs, Innovative Community Strategies. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on December 14, 2022. In this podcast, Karen M. Rose, the Vice Dean, the Director, and a Professor of the Center for Healthy Aging, Self-Management, and Complex Care at the Ohio State University College of Nursing, discusses insights on assessing caregiver burden and supporting the mindfulness of caregivers and families.
1: It's a pleasure to be with everyone today to discuss one of my favorite topics, how we can further support unpaid or family caregivers for persons living with Alzheimer's disease or related dementias. So let me expand a little bit on some of the statistics that you just heard earlier, just to reorient you to how many people really in the United States are living with Alzheimer's disease or related dementia. So what you heard earlier was that up to 20% of all people who are duly eligible have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or related dementia. In the general population, that's a little lower, 11% over age 65. What we also know is that 13.8 million Americans currently have Alzheimer's disease or related dementia and that they currently have about 6.5 million is projected to grow to 13.8 million, so really a doubling by 2060, which is scary. So what you'll see on the right then is a little graph that I pulled together that looks at the age breakdown, if you will, of people living with Alzheimer's disease. And what you'll see then is that the fastest growing segments are really the middle older adults, which I call the 75 to 84 year old persons and then certainly the 85 and older, growing at a rate of, we're expected, 2.31 million currently. So really growth in all segments of persons age 65 and older, but certainly in the middle and older old segments. As we look at caregivers in the United States, what I wanted to show you is on the left-hand side. These are data that encompass all caregivers across all diseases. So you'll see that about 43.5 million people in the US said that they were caregivers in 2015. This number grew to 53 million in 2020. We also saw, too, this growth from 18% to 21%, that nearly one in five are providing unpaid care to adult with health or functional needs. Further, we see that more Americans are caring for more than one person needing Some, some assistance and that number's grown from 18 to 24%. And that more family caregivers have difficulty coordinating care. Again, this number's up from 19% in 2015 to 26% in 2020. Further, we see that caregivers are caring for more people with Alzheimer's disease, up from 22% to 26% in 2020. And then we saw two more family caregivers reporting that their health is failing as a result of being a caregiver, from 17% up to 21%. On the right-hand side of this slide, the caregiver statistics there are really very specific for people who are providing care for a family or friend with Alzheimer's disease or a related dementia. And so in this specific area, in this disease, 66% of caregivers tell us that they're living with their care recipients. 30% of caregivers are 65 years of age or older. And what that tells me is that many of these people, 30%, often are dealing with their own health needs, chronic disease management. We see that over 50% are caring for a parent or an in-law and that around 10% are caring for a spouse or partner. So we know that Alzheimer's disease and related dementias are progressive neurodegenerative diseases. And so as the disease progresses, we do note increased ADRD, or Alzheimer's disease, related dementia symptoms. Things like wandering, day-night confusion, often becoming more aggressive or paranoid. And so as these symptoms increase over time, the activities that caregivers need to undertake to keep their care recipient safe and well taken care of increase as well, which can lead to a worsening of caregiver burden and distress. So the notion behind the work that I've been undertaking is that caregivers really need interventions to reduce their distress in real time. So along this line, we have an ongoing project titled, Learning and Improving Alzheimer's Patient Caregiver Relationships via Smart Healthcare Technology. I've provided you information there. If you care to look it up on clinicaltrials.gov, you'll see the identifier there. We do have IRB approval for this, certainly, from The Ohio State University. And we've received funding for this, four years of funding, from the National Science Foundation. So the study purpose and program aims of our study are listed on the clinicaltrials.gov, but I'll repeat them here for you. So what we have been funded to do from the National Sciences Foundation is develop a monitoring, modeling, and interactive recommendation solution for caregivers for in-home dementia patient care that focuses really on the caregiver and the patient relationship. That through this, we're going to be monitoring for mood of the caregiver and stress of the caregiver and analyzing the significance of monitoring these for dementia patient care and subsequent behavior dynamics between the patient and the caregiver. And we're deploying timely behavioral suggestions or recommendations, as we call them, with the aim of improving interactions related to caregiving. So throughout this, we are we have developed and we have deployed an in-home smart health technology that uses acoustic monitoring, so vocal recognition, to identify conflict between persons living with Alzheimer's disease and their caregivers and we aim to provide stress management tips in real time for the caregiver. We're also determining the feasibility and acceptability and efficacy to improve the relationships using this type of modality and we're hopeful that we can potentially reduce the stressful effects of the patient's illness and the strain on caregivers. So I, I mentioned that we're using acoustic monitoring or vocal recognition. And you may ask, how does the voice, how to, why do we use voice as a measure of stress? So let me tell you a little bit about that. So when we are undergoing stress, you can what we have found out, in, in everyone, is that not only stress affects the conversation content, certainly we use potentially different words and grammar, But we can also see other changes, speed of the speech, the pitch, the speaking rate. So you'll see there on the left, when a person experiences higher stress, it activates the HPA and you'll see hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. You may have heard of this if you remember back to biology. And then what this enacts then, it increases the body's release of cortisol production and release of cortisol which has two really interactions there so to the right if you follow along cortisol release activates the sympathetic nervous system and this is a system that we often think of as being the fight or flight where we react more rapidly we have high stress levels we speak quicker we're more choppy in our behaviors that sort of thing it, it increases muscle tension and respiratory rate Higher cortisol also too affects changes in speech production. So it really is through these changes in voice sound that we have a proxy for stress, and that's what we're using in our project to measure as a measure of stress. So let me overview with you, give you an overview of what our intervention or what our project really looks like. Let's just start on the right-hand side and, and move with me from right to left. So there are three components of the system, and these components are the microphone the laptop computer, and on the far left, a smartphone. So when participants speak, the microphone picks up their voices. And when I say participants, that's the caregiver and the person with Alzheimer's disease. So the microphone picks up their voices, and the voices are uploaded to the cloud for our algorithms to identify the emotions that are captured within the caregiver-care recipient interactions. When our algorithms detect a mood state, for example, Anchor, we deliver a mindfulness-based tip through the smartphone to the caregiver as a reminder to support the caregiver and to help them improve their interactions with their care recipient. We also use the smartphones to deliver and receive feedback from caregivers regarding whether or not they used our tip, if it worked for them, and to assess their mood states each evening. So you'll see on the far left, their recommendations or the tips that we give fall into a couple of different categories. We give them stress management tips, such as taking some deep breaths, doing some deep breathing exercises, taking a timeout if they're able, doing a quick body scan to see where tension is in their body. We also have provided them, based on their feedback, some ideas for pleasurable activities that they can do by themselves or with the care recipient at that time throughout the day we provide them with positive affirmations about the work that they're doing as caregivers and we provide them to with encouraging words so a bit of an overview of the intervention of our project so we certainly screen people for participation so they need to be able to understand english although we are looking at modifications to that to make it more accessible for other patient populations particularly hispanic patient populations so we screen them we certainly consent them to be a part of this study and then we have mailed been mailing them via system setup so that includes the microphone the laptop and the smartphone our original plan pre-covid was to deliver these to individuals and to do some of the the training in their homes COVID had us really pivot that notion because we didn't certainly, the older adults were among the most vulnerable during the pandemic. So we didn't want to interfere or certainly not adhere to guidelines. So we've been nailing the equipment. During the baseline period for up to one month, that really is a time for us, and what I mean us, our system to understand the different voices of the people. So for example, if. The care recipient and the caregiver are the two people who are a part of this study. We all know that people come to visit, neighbors, family, all of those things. We don't want to listen, if you will, or play with, interact with the voices of people, only the caregiver and the care recipient. So to that end, it's during that really one month period that we're doing all kinds of background system checks to be sure that we're understanding exactly, that our computer is understanding really, who the caregiver is, they can label them as caregiver, and who the care recipient is as well. So that's a lot of what's going on during that one month period of time. During the three-month then implementation period, up to three months, that's when we're fully enacting all the recommendations, all the tips, asking them questions throughout the day, if they received the tip, if they did it, those kinds of things, and really monitoring for mood. And then at the end of the intervention or the study period, that's when we are administering surveys for them. We use a myriad of very reliable, readily available surveys. And then we do an interview, really to get their sense of how well the systems met their expectations, how they think we can further refine the systems, and just to hear more from their perspective. So while this is an ongoing study, what I can share with you are some interim results. So we have seen improvements in depressive symptoms, anxiety, and stress in caregivers. We've seen less reactivity to care recipient behaviors, despite there being no reduction in the frequency, if you will, of these behaviors. Caregivers have told us they've gained insights into their own behaviors in ways that they can better interact with their care recipients. We've heard repeatedly that the use of timeout was very helpful, just a reminder to step away when their stress levels were really high. And we heard, too, that the daily affirmations that we send to The caregivers every morning really help them set the stage for them wanting to have a positive supportive day so what we've learned along the way as well there are issues certainly with technology and so we've had participants who have been very technologically savvy and literate and are so excited and want to give us feedback on software and all kinds of things And we've had caregivers, I will tell you the majority, have been caregivers who have not been very tech-savvy. So what we've had to really think through and do some pilot testing was, what are some ways that we can help caregivers understand and not be overwhelmed by the system? Because certainly to set up the system, setting it up to our router, that sort of thing, we've had to really think through best ways to do that from a distance. We have oftentimes worked with other family members, maybe a daughter, a son-in-law, whomever that might be, who they believe has more tech savvy and can help them with the system setup. What we've heard overwhelmingly is that caregivers don't have time. And so this is not surprising. Certainly we understand this in the literature and we've seen this in many other projects. What's been striking is that in the moment to ask someone to take some deep breath, they believe they don't have time to do that. So it reinforces to us the need for any interventions to be very quick, very easy to understand, and something that they can do without the need for additional equipment or anything else. So it's been eye-opening. We've understood, too, that they've had difficulty answering messages sent in real time right after the mood detection, which makes sense. So we've played around a bit with how soon after we send a recommendation do we send a follow-up survey asking, did you receive it, did you enact it, did you enact the mindfulness? So it's, it's really been quite interesting for us to understand more fully the time-sensitive nature of the work that the caregivers are undertaking. We've also understood, and knew this going into it, that emotions are really complex. And so even if I were to ask you right now, how are you feeling, what you might tell me and what I might perceive could be different. People have very different insights into their own emotions. And so asking a computer through machine learning and algorithms to detect it, we anticipate that they're never going to have a one-to-one match. So, what we 've been doing to help with that to help improve our algorithms we've been going back through it and using looking at what the algorithms say we 've been manually coding them and what we 've come to come to understand is that oftentimes when people are angry or upset or in conflict, they 're not vocalizing it right they 're stepping back they're stepping away from. And certainly, if, we, if our system that is relying on vocalizations, if people are silent, you know, we have no chance of identifying that lead state. So these are some questions that we have and, and some opportunities for further refining our system. So briefly, in summary, consider I'd, I'd ask that technology-based interventions should, could be and should be considered. They provide high flexibility and the potential for scalability as an alternative or a complement to traditional in-person services for dementia caregivers. I certainly think that technology is not going to replace interactions with other people, and that I continue to encourage caregivers to participate in community support groups and support services. Caregivers, we've heard pretty much 100% of the time that they really have appreciated hearing compliments on their efforts to support their care recipients that they need some support in this sense that they hear repeatedly, recognition that they're doing hard work and that it matters. I'd also suggest, too, that screening for depressive symptoms and referral is warranted. It's certainly needed in this patient population. And, and any help we can provide to assist caregivers with maintaining their own health and well-being is incredibly important. So again, reminding caregivers to maintain their own health maintenance through regular checkups and vaccinations. So I just wanted to acknowledge our team at the Ohio State, at the University of Virginia, and at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Loon Group and is supported through the Medicare-Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts and resources, please visit our website, resourcesforintegratedcare.com. You can also find us on Twitter. Our handle is at integrate underscore care or follow resources for integrated care on LinkedIn to stay up to date with our recent products and technical assistance.